aber es bohrt in das Investigation rum. Und er sagt, er wird continue now und ask me some more questions. To understand why I actually came to Moscow to improve the relations between East and West. The mood was really friendly. It was not a feeling like I'm a stranger, very polite. But I noticed also that they do not really trust me. They told me this investigator, when he was 19, he was only thinking about getting drunk or having girlfriends, not about peace and relations between East and West. I said, we don't believe you now that you're just a young guy from 19 years only by yourself to improve the relations. I said, we cannot believe that. But I told them, I'm telling the truth and everything what they're saying is honest. 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 Honesty was some strange word for them at that time in the Cold War. Then about five o'clock in the morning, one of the investigators asked me if I have an idea where they're going to bring me now. And I said, most likely they wouldn't bring me to an hotel or something. So then an officer came. Then a fixed steel door was opening. And I saw the jail. And I was scared. They asked me to tell me the truth from the beginning. From Radiotopia, you're listening to Love and Radio. I'm Nick Vanderkolk. Today's episode, I Sitting Beside Me, featuring Matthias Roost. Passers-by watched amazed as a Cessna light aircraft landed in Red Square. Its pilot was a young West German, Matthias Roost. There was a small plane, and uh, people were curiously climbing up and looking inside, and some people were talking to the pilot and asking him questions. He was just leaning against the side. And then uh, an American tourist in the crowd called and asked him um, where he had come from, and he said from Helsinki. It gave us a shock, because it was a German and he violated Soviet airspace, broken laws and international regulations. It could have turned into a bilateral crisis. But what would cause a 19-year-old to do such a thing? The first idea occurred to me in autumn 1986. It was right after that summit in Reykjavik. Ronald Reagan and Michael Gorbachev supposed to sign a treaty and they couldn't get it done. It's really difficult from today to get at that feeling how it was, how it was to, to live in a almost war. We were surrounded by enemy countries. You know that uh, thousands of nuclear missiles were pointed at where you were living, from both sides. And that's why I came to the conclusion that we need to build an imaginary bridge between West and East. The only way I can do is by the help of an aircraft. I wasn't sure from the beginning. It was maybe I calculated that I had maybe a 50 to 50 chance to, to reach actually, to reach Moscow. 
but I couldn't be sure. I was sure that they had a lot of missiles based along the borders. They had aircraft everywhere. They had a very, very sophisticated radar equipment. So I need a little bit of luck. I didn't talk about that to anyone, to my parents or to my friends, because they would have done anything to stop me from flying to Moscow, because they would have seen me being shot down by the Russian forces, for sure. But if I would be able to reach Moscow, it would show everybody that weapons and armaments is not the conclusion for securing peace. arrived in Finland on May 25th, 1987, so three days before I departed to Moscow. It was about 10 degrees outside, it was quite cold, it was just like I felt like, miserable and I was freezing all the time. I was walking around the city for about these two days. I was always reflecting and trying to convince myself that I was doing the right thing. I was tending to just leave and go back, fly back home. It felt like it's, it's easier. No? This, I realized more and more as closer as this departure day came, it was, it was like a wall that I wasn't be able to climb over. I was very much scared. Scared of doing the wrong decision, being shot down, of death. Then the 28th of May arrived. I woke up in the morning, I didn't sleep the whole night, and then the taxi brought me to the airport, and I wasn't sure at that time what I was actually doing. I was just filling in the flight plan. Destination was Stockholm. Then I lift off. I was following for half an hour the, the, exactly the direction of, of, the, of the tower. Then it felt like, like an out-of-body experience. It was not like, like me. It's not like I was sitting there and was doing a, a clear, clear decision. It was just like it happened by itself. I changed the direction of the aircraft. I was going on, on the course to Moscow and then I was just flying there. And it felt all the time like, like I was sitting next to me and I was watching me how I was conducting that aircraft and keeping it on course. It is something like you're living between two lives in, in that moment. And you cannot really see and control that what was happening in that moment. One hour later, I crossed the Soviet border and I didn't see any aircraft yet, and I was surprised. Nobody is approaching me. There's no attempt. I had this radio on the emergency frequency squawked. They could have talked to me if they wanted, but there was nothing. It was just a silence. 20 minutes later, I was actually approached by an aircraft, a military one. I just saw it, saw the silhouette 
coming behind the cloud and was just heading straight to me. My eyes opened wide. My heart dropped down on my pants. And I was waiting actually for the hit. Explosion or something like I saw it on TV. But nothing happened. Silence for minutes. Five or six minutes later, I saw the aircraft, the military one, passing by. Maybe about 50 meters lower than me flying. And I saw clearly the red star on the outside. And the two pilots. I saw them wearing white helmets. I saw the oxygen mask. Orange overalls. I said, what is that doing now? Nothing happened. After about five hours, I saw the first buildings of Moscow rising on the horizon. Then I said, I'm there. I'm safe. Because I did know that as soon as I reached the buildings, the city, they wouldn't dare to shoot me down anymore because that would have been the risk to hide that somebody else would be harmed on the ground. The next challenge was just to, to locate Red Square. I want to land. But the people there, and I cannot raise, uh, land there with all the people in, 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 in the Red Square. So I decided to just make an overshoot, to go down, maybe to 10 to 15 meters, about that, to indicate them I want to land there. I did that, and I saw how slowly the, the people spread. They went to the side, and some of them remained shocked, standing straight in front of the aircraft. If I would land now, I would hit them all down. So. I said, maybe they understand that, and when I return at a second approach, they would have understood that I wanted to land right there. But it happened the same thing. The people always returned like ants back to the center of the Red Square. But then I discovered a six-lane white bridge heading straight to the Red Square, the Moskowitsky Bridge. Then I decided for to land on that bridge. There was a few cars at that time on that bridge. I was overtaken on the left side and then I saw this, this man watching to the side, watching me straight in the face with big eyes. And, and I was only hoping that he would not lose the control of his car and we maybe would have a crash. But then he was just going ahead. Scary, funny moments. Then we're just parking the um, aircraft. The engine was off. I was sitting quiet in the pilot's seat, surrounded by the crowd. It's time to get out. Then a boy, maybe 15 to 16, started to talk to me in English. The first question was, where you came from? I'm from, from Germany. I said, that's good, that's from our partners. Welcome, also said. They said, to make it clear, I'm from, from West Germany, and not from East Germany. 
Und er war sehr überrascht. Weil auf so huge black Sedan arrived. The tall man walked out. He had a lot of medals on, on his chest, on his uniform. And he asked me first, he wanted to see my passport. I handed over to him and he went through it. And then, where's your visa, please? I said, I don't have one visa. If I would have applied in, in Hamburg in the consulate for one visa, I would have stated I wanted to fly to Moscow to demonstrate for peace. Uh, what I would have done? If he would think that I would have issued me a visa for that purpose. And he said, of course not. He told me, you are really brave boy. And he said, what you did is really, really good. And he supports that in, a, in a, this, this idea. And he wishes me all the best to go ahead with it. But he said, but next time, please apply for a visa to make sure that everything goes its way. I said, yes, I can do that. 20 minutes later, military trucks arrived. Soldiers jumped off of the trays and they start to bar off the people with some steel barriers. When I asked the boy, what, what are they saying? Soldiers say that the people have to leave now. But they're not going, they said, they don't want to leave me alone because they want to protect me from them. I said, oh, this is interesting. They want to help me and protect them from their own military. I like that idea. And then they brought me to this police station and it wasn't in this, this building was in really sad status. I was brought into this investigation room. Then about five o'clock in the morning, one of the investigators asked me if I have an idea where they're going to bring me now. And I said, Most likely they wouldn't bring me to an hotel or something. Yes, he said, you're right. You will not, will not be brought to an hotel. You will just be brought now to the jail that is next to our building. But I stand tough and I realize I'm not changing my versions. And they couldn't find anything on that side that is, was undermining what I was saying. Went ahead for about three weeks, this kind of investigation. Then three weeks later, when the KGB finished the pre-investigation, and they showed me also a little, little certificate that stated that the pre-investigation is completed, and now everybody was smiling. And they offered me some cookies and some really good tea. I said, what are celebrating now? They are convinced today that I am not a spy, that I'm not a provocator, and they said, They see me now as a friend of the Soviet Union. Just like that. I said, you are playing with my mind now, yes? You want to make me mad in the last minutes. I said, no. It's, it's really what, what we have found out. He said, you are not a, not a provocator. You're not an enemy. You really did that, what you said. And that we honor. The Soviet legal system at that time was that way that You were only able to ask for a lawyer after the investigation was finished. Very convenient for them. I asked my lawyer what they presume. I said, is it possible to me that I get a suspended jail term or something? And he said, it's really rare in, in the Soviet Union that the sentence suspended. Maybe you're getting 10 years or so? I said, 10 years? I saw myself with a long grey beard. 
hardly any teeth in the mouth. Bend it back or something, that was my picture of 10 years in the Lieber camp. I was bored with a green van to the courtroom. This courtroom was full of people. Most of them were journalists from the Soviet Union from all over the place. I saw my parents, my brother was also there. There was a red painted bench, especially red, signal red. And it was still sticky. <laughs> so I said, they just painted it for me so it looks new. But they didn't wait long to dry it out. So I was sitting there on this bench and I was sticking on with my pants and I'm only thinking about my pants now spoiled with this red paint. I said, what for an important question am I the thought I have now in my mind? I'm thinking about the red paint on my pants. And then I asked him, do you have anything to cover that? And this guy was asked, what, what do you want you to do now? You're now in court. And they gave me a towel, the kitchen towel. The prosecutor started accusing me of hooliganism, including illegally the Soviet airspace, put danger to air traffic. They were very much convinced that I just did all that to become a public figure. That is what the whole West is looking for, to just become the public figure and to earn a lot of money. I said that I wanted to move something. I wanted to change the world to a peaceful one, more peaceful one. To become a public figure in that terms, without being noticed in the public, you cannot really move anything. When I met my parents, the first thing my mother said to the prosecutor who was also in the room, she asked them not to torture me and not to give me any drugs. The Soviet investigator said, we're not putting him under drugs or we're not torturing your son. My mother said, but everybody knows that you torture people. And he said, maybe in the past on some other people, maybe that happened to We cannot deny that. Your son is safe and he's fine and we will not harm him. And my mother was kind of surprised to hear that and of course she was relaxed. It was a sad moment when we have to separate again. Because I didn't know when I would meet them again. This can be months, it can be even years. I didn't know. My mother had tears in her eyes, running down her cheeks. I was shaky. I'm sure it was very pale in the face. The whole body was shaken and I felt like I was almost, I was falling flat on the floor next moment. Then the judge started to read his, his papers and the interpreter was translating it to me. And I only heard Lieber Campbell. Four years. Four years? I said, oh my God. Four months I said I was in jail. And now four more years? I almost fainted. I think that is a feeling only somebody else who also was sentenced to some jail term can really experience you know, or following that what, what I felt in that moment. And I think I would cry in that moment if I could. Could have cried. 
Körper war Strider, I felt like all my life energy escaped from out of space or something. It was just mute, without any emotions, without any feelings. Just an empty, hollow body. My first Christmas coming up in, in jail, we had a lot of snow and it was very cold, minus 30 degrees. I got the permission to walk two hours a day in this garden. I was brought into this investigation room. And they said they would continue now and ask me some more questions to understand why I actually came to Moscow to improve the relations between East and West. The mood was really friendly. It was not feeling like I'm a stranger, very polite. But I noticed also that they do not really trust me. They told me this investigator, when he was 19, he was only thinking about getting drunk or having girlfriends. Not about peace and relations between East and West. I said, we don't believe you now that you're just a young guy from 19 years only by yourself to improve the relations. I said, we cannot believe that. But I told them, I'm telling the truth and everything what they're saying is honest. 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 Honesty was some strange word for them at that time in the Cold War. Then about five o'clock in the morning, one of the investigators asked me if I have an idea where they're going to bring me now. And I said, most likely they wouldn't bring me to an hotel or something. So then an officer came. Then a fixed steel door was opening. And I saw the jail. And I was scared. They asked me to tell me the truth from the beginning. From Radiotopia, you're listening to Love and Radio. I'm Nick Vanderkolk. Today's episode, I Sitting Beside Me, featuring Matthias Roost. Passers-by watched amazed as a Cessna light aircraft landed in Red Square. Its pilot was a young West German, Matthias Roost. There was a small plane and uh, people were curiously climbing up and looking inside and some people were talking to the pilot and asking him questions. He was just leaning against the side. And then uh, an American tourist in the crowd called and asked him um, where he had come from and he said from Helsinki. It gave us a shock because it was a German and he violated Soviet airspace, broken laws and international regulations. It could have turned into a bilateral crisis. But what would cause a 19-year-old to do such a thing? 
The first idea occurred to me in autumn 1986. It was right after that summit in Reykjavik. Ronald Reagan and Michael Gorbachev supposed to sign a treaty and they couldn't get it done. It's really difficult from today to get at that feeling how it was, how it was to, to live in an almost war. We were surrounded by enemy countries. You know that uh, thousands of nuclear missiles were pointed at where you were living, from both sides. And that's why I came to the conclusion that we need to build an imaginary bridge between West and East. The only way I can do is by the help of an aircraft. I wasn't sure from the beginning. It was maybe I calculated that I had maybe a 50 to 50 chance to, to reach actually, to reach Moscow. But I couldn't be sure. I was sure that they had a lot of missiles based along the borders. They had aircraft everywhere. They had a very, very sophisticated radar equipment. So I need a little bit of luck. I didn't talk about that to anyone, to my parents or to my friends, because they would have done anything to stop me from flying to Moscow, because they would have seen me being shot down by the Russian forces, for sure. But if I would be able to reach Moscow, it would show everybody that weapons and armaments is not the conclusion for securing peace. Arrived in Finland on May 25th, 1987, so three days before I departed to Moscow. It was about 10 degrees outside, it was quite cold, it was just like I felt like, miserable and I was freezing all the time. I was walking around the city for about these two days. I was always reflecting and trying to convince myself that I was doing the right thing. I was tending to just leave and go back, fly back home. It felt like it's, it's easier. No? This, I realized more and more as closer as this departure day came, it was, it was like a wall that I wasn't be able to climb over. I was very much scared. Scared of doing the wrong decision, being shot down, of death. Then the 28th of May arrived. I woke up in the morning, I didn't sleep the whole night, and then the taxi brought me to the airport, and I wasn't sure at that time what I was actually doing. I was just filling in the flight plan. Destination was Stockholm. And then I lift off. Moscow just to free myself, to earn money and for selfish ideas and so. So it became everything very superficial. It was so overwhelming. There was just too, just too much input at that time for me. Input? Yeah, too much input. It was just like I, I felt uh, one jail I changed for the next. Only a few people, but it felt like everybody was against you at that time. 
to make yourself like you're flowing. Flowing on air, something like that. I get a lot of letters from, from Germans who was threatening my life and I was scared. I went to the police at that time with my parents and I said they cannot do anything about just some papers. That is not enough to, to do anything again. No? So I felt like I need to need to arm I need to arm myself. I did this what I actually was demonstrating against armament. So I I armed myself to defend myself. I don't know if this is too sensitive a topic, but can we, can we talk about what what happened a few years later with the um, mm -hmm. um, you know the injury of the nurse the injury of the nurse yes this was one of the consequences unfortunately. It was just when I was starting my civil service in, in, in this um, in the hospital, what was here a substitute for the military service, what you could apply for. It was exactly this. I was destabilized more than I expected. It didn't feel like it didn't feel like months after I returned to Germany that, that bad anymore. But then she said something what, what later on and on the counselors see it as a hit to the mark. Her words hit me to the mark that I had this reaction. Do you, you remember what was said? No, I can't really remember those words. No. The counselor said it was something, something must have said, must have hit me in a way that really caused in this, in this kind of blackout situation that reaction. Make me force and to do something what was actually completely contrary to my personality. That was of no violence at all. Some words were spoken that hit me. Somehow and triggered that. That injured her. How badly injured was she? It was, it was life-threatening, but it happened in, 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 in the hospital. So she got an operation. There was only a, a flash wound. No organs were hit, fortunately. When did you realize what actually had happened? Hours later, hours later. I was, I was just walking in the forest close by this, uh, this hospital. And then they had already called the police, looking out for me. And then I couldn't really, uh, really remember what, what happened. I only knew that something was wrong with me. It was really dark times at that time. And it was just like a question of time, the psychologist said, that something like this could happen. Anyhow, this with a knife or with, with a steel bar or whatever. <coughs> it was just like a, like a barrel of water that all of a sudden it was, was due to overflow. And it was this, just like a small explosion and then everything is gone. And this was that. What, what is it like to know that that's, that's, that's inside you, to realize that, that that could be brought out in the right circumstance? Deep inside me, something like that really was living all the time. I did realize before that we are dual, that we have both, positive and negative. But there's so much negativity in, 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 inside me that I was actually able to do that. 
Der Surprise scared me. Und of course, I had a lot of meetings with psychologists at that time to work that out and to, to realize that, to get stable, to, to live with that idea that I actually have blood on my hands at that time. Do you feel like when the incident happened with the nurse, that that gave the media an excuse to sort of disregard the earlier stuff that you did? Yes, for sure. The incident with the nurse gave them really, it was feeding my critic. They were dancing. From the beginning, he was mad. And that's now with the nurse underlined that. I really give them, pass them over a present. But I think, I think you are a little bit crazy, you know, and not, not in a necessarily bad way, but I think that they're related, you know, I think that making that, that initial choice for good is, is similar to, to going to the dark space as well. I think it was, I think it was kind of crazy to think that you could change the world. And, you know, you did, you did obviously, mm -hmm. but it does require something something different from how other people view the world, you know? Mm. And I don't mean that disrespectfully. Mm. No, no, I understand. I understand what yeah. I mean. Yes, it's, I also, also that judge myself as, as a crazy person in, in, this, in this sense. No? That I really, this makes a difference. That makes a difference between being a sheep for the rest of your life or just walking aside. That needs any kind of craziness and quotation marks. Is, is required to, to go that, that way. That's it for Love and Radio. The show was produced by Brendan Baker, Mike Martinez, and myself, Nick Vanderkolk, with help from Sina Koppel. We are a proud founding member of Radiotopia from PRX. They are supported in part by the Knight Foundation and MailChimp, celebrating creativity, chaos, and teamwork. Thanks for listening. <laughs>